You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey exploring the Rose City's most famous architectural and cultural landmarks, its forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populated them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've been exploring Portland's built environment for the past 20 years as a journalist and critic covering the city's architecture, arts, politics, and more. excited to share what I've learned and to learn along with you as we talk to a spectrum of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. I think it's fair to say that Portland is one of America's most book-loving cities. We happen to have the largest independent bookstore in the world in Powell's City of Books, a couple years ago, Amazon also ranked Portland number two on its list of the most well-read cities in America, based on both print and electronic sales of books, magazines, and newspapers. That put us second only to Seattle. There's probably something about the rainy Pacific Northwest climate that's conducive to reading. One other statistic that I remember reading a few years ago was that Portland had the highest number of library card holders per capita of any major city in the United States. And that I would believe, because for so many people I know, Various branches of the Multnomah County Library System are both where they access free books and music and movies, and also where they connect with their community. Like many people, I have fond memories myself of going to the library as a kid. I went to a Carnegie Library in my hometown of McMinnville, Oregon, and that's in part where I developed an interest in books, as my dad shared with me his boyhood favorites there, like Tom Swift and the Hardy Boys. And when I moved to Portland in 1997 after college on the East Coast, I lived in an apartment downtown that was just a few blocks from the crown jewel of our library system, Central Library. Completed in 1911 with a budget of $480,000, about 13 million bucks adjusted for inflation, Central Library occupies a full block between Southwest 10th and 11th Avenues and Yamhill and Taylor Streets. As downtown moved west in the early 20th century, the library quickly became a landmark, and no wonder. In an elegant Georgian style with wide-volume reading rooms under elegant chandeliers, as well as an exterior of stately brick and gorgeous curving Venetian windows. It was designed by Portland's greatest architect of the early 20th century, A.E. Doyle, who also designed a succession of other landmarks around the city that remain today, such as the Benson Hotel, the Myron Frank Department Store, Reed College, and the stadium now known as Providence Park, home to the Portland Timbers. Today we're going to share with you first an interview with Phil Niles, author of the excellent A.E. Doyle biography, Beauty of the City, about this great architect and how Central Library's commission and design came about. But this library is also, of course, a thriving building today. And while people may be reading books and periodicals in print less often than they used to, that certainly doesn't mean libraries aren't getting used. In a time of historically high economic inequality, libraries like Central are an essential resource more than ever. So with that in mind, Our second interview is with Angela Wirens, Central City Library Manager for the Multnomah County Library System, about how this landmark is doing today and how it serves the public. And I have good news. You don't need a library card to access this podcast episode, and we won't charge you a nickel if you listen to it a few months late. is a professor emeritus of history at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, a 
Portland native, he returned to the city in 1999, and his terrific 2008 book, Beauty of the City, A.E. Doyle, Portland's Architect, is an exceptional and well-researched biography of the man who designed perhaps more Portland landmarks than any other designer. Mr. Niles has spent much of his life around Doyle's architecture, and we're glad to have him here today to talk about Central Library and Doyle's legacy. Phil Niles, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. The first thing that strikes me about A.E. Doyle is that he was really, in addition to being a, a wonderful architect, a, a, a real witness to Portland's history. Uh, I was looking at some of the numbers, and he came to the city in 1882, I believe, at a, I think the age of five. And that would have been, I think, just 31 years after Portland was incorporated as a city. But then he also opened his own architectural office in 1907, and, and that would have been just two years after, I, I believe, after the Lewis and Clark Centennial Exhibition, the World's Fair. Ultimately, what I mean is A.E. Doyle was kind of witness to both the frontier town and the increasingly ambitious city. I think those were t two periods of most dynamic growth in the history of Portland. Mm -hmm. The uh, year after he came, the train arrived from the east, and Portland was suddenly connected with uh, Minneapolis yes. and no longer isolated. And that was a period of very, very rapid growth in population, in the economy. It was an enormous uh, influx of people and the development of the Columbia Basin and Portland was the port for the Columbia Basin, so Portland prospered in that period. And then the 90s were a period of profound recession. The city didn't grow much. And after the World's Fair, there was a sudden spurt of growth, perhaps as a result of the World's Fair, but also because Portland had become a center of uh, timber and uh, it was a delayed industry mm -hmm. uh, it didn't happen until uh, the, in, the timber industry in the Midwest had dried up and mm -hmm. the uh, timber barons moved out here. Right, right. And uh, I believe wheat was, was really a big uh, commodity at that point as well. Yeah, e e even earlier, um, beginning about 1870, wheat uh, developed both in the Willamette Valley but especially in the Columbia Basin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, you see this uh, generation of buildings that start to get built in Portland in the late 19th century that I guess would be called part of the cast iron era of architecture. And they have all these references to uh, classical Greek and Roman architecture. And uh, I think these buildings, uh, both that he would have kind of grown up with and then in a sense that he uh, contributed to, even if they weren't cast iron, this they, they really spoke to how uh, Portland wanted to communicate to the world that it was connected to that European tradition. Yeah, that was certainly true until about 1880. And after that, there was a period of Richardsonian buildings, the mm -hmm. magnificent buildings. We've lost almost all of those. We have more of the cast iron than we do of the Richardsonian. Yes, yes. And and one of the 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 biggest most visible Richardsonian buildings, of course, was just torn, torn down the uh, uh, United uh, United Workmen Temple uh, near City Hall. Yeah. Um, so, um, and then, of course, um, Doyle's 
design himself uh, in starting in the um, uh, early part of the 20th century is really a, a kind of, I guess you could call it a Beaux-Arts architecture that is really a, a successor to cast iron in that it's all about these different revival styles. And there may be certain types of revival architecture that, that Doyle was using as a vocabulary, like Georgian, for example, a central library. But he was also, um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, exploring a few different um, types of, uh, of revival styles that hearken maybe more to, to Italy or to Greece or, or what have you. Yeah, certainly that. Um, in fact, I think his iconic buildings like the U.S. National Bank is the same sort of thing as the um, Central Library. It's a Roman temple. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, the Reed College buildings, which are Jac Jacobethan palaces, mm -hmm. um, they use the idiom of historical styles to express the function and purpose of the of the institution. Mm -hmm. It was entirely appropriate that the central library be Georgian because that was considered to be American architecture and harken back to Thomas Jefferson, who was responsible for the University of uh, Virginia. And it spoke to the the ideal of the library, which was to educate the voters of America and to strengthen the democracy. Yes, yes. And and Doyle has a kind of pedigree of his own as well. Uh, and this is something that interests me about him, in addition to the wonderful buildings themselves, is that um, you could connect him all the way to uh, America's greatest architecture firm, perhaps of the late 19th century, McKim, Mead & White in New York City, because, as you know, uh, uh, they were tied to the Portland Hotel that was ultimately finished by a, a, an offshoot firm, Wyndon Lewis, uh, here in Portland. But, of course, Doyle also was the employer of Pietro Belusky, who became kind of the other most significant architect in Portland history. And so I enjoy also thinking of Doyle as part of this sort of uh, line of pedigree and, and, and this line of, of influence in a, in a kind of family tree of Portland architecture. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, Wyndon uh, designed the Portland Hotel when he was working for McKim, Mead & White. Mm -hmm. and uh, and he came out first uh, to supervise it. And then when VR went uh, bankrupt, he, had, he returned to the East and uh, worked in Boston for a while, uh, started a firm in Boston, and then decided to move out here. Mm -hmm. And so there's that. And then Belusky was the designer after Doyle's death uh, yes. in, the, in the Doyle firm and continued in that firm until... Um, I think 1942, I think he renamed the firm and called it for himself. Yes, yes. I believe Doyle died in 1928 then. That's so right. That would January been, of 28, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like a 15-year period that his firm even continued after his death. Um, as as A.E. Doyle, even though that was contrary to Oregon law, the name had to be a, a living person. Oh, interesting, interesting. But, they, but his firm had such a reputation that they permitted him then mm -hmm. to continue. I'd also like to ask about maybe what you might call a kind of rosebud uh, factor for A.E. Doyle uh, to borrow from Citizen Kane, this notion of something driving him. And even though I don't want to overemphasize this, I was curious about Doyle's father and the fact that if I'm not mistaken, he was a uh, a builder himself, uh, but also battled alcoholism. And so do you think that's something important to know about Doyle and maybe part of what would have uh, driven him? You know, I really don't know why... Doyle, as insignificant as he was, would have been accepted as an apprentice by Witten and Lewis. Mm -hmm. it, uh, and I 
don't think it was his father that was responsible for it because I think his father was very insignificant. Hmm. I, th- I credit his mother much more, who I had the sense from family papers and family memories that she was a very dynamic force. Interesting. And then when it comes to actually uh, having a kind of patron or someone giving him commissions when he does become an architect, um, there's one of the most kind of important names in the history of the city, Thomas Lamb Elliot, who uh, gives him, I believe, his first commission for building in Hood River and then also is involved in uh, the Central Library Commission as well. Yes. Uh, I love the story about uh, uh, Doyle was traveling in the east going north and the Elliot family was traveling south and they met in Florence. And Elliot said something about how he was having problems designing a building. He'd given it to an architect in Hood River and he wasn't happy with what was happening. And so Doyle spent the evening drawing something up. He gave it to Elliot. Elliot liked it and he sent the plans off and told them to build it as Doyle had drawn it. Oh, my goodness. And, of course, Thomas Lamb Elliot uh, was, uh, I believe, chairman of the Board of board of Regents at Reed College, so he uh, would have also been involved in that commission, too. And and I think he was vice president of the Library Association. So yes. talk yes. about serendipity. Yeah. Well, and he was on the board of the Art Museum, and he took an interest in the sketch club, which uh, Doyle was always very active in. I think he was always the secretary of, mm-hmm. the, of the sketch club. And Elliot saw to it that uh, artists were brought in for the sketch club to help train the uh, young artists mm-hmm. in, in the sketch club. Because the sketch club had formed uh, by Doyle and some of his friends. They didn't have any place they could study. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they formed a sketch club when the library was established and upstairs in the library was the beginning of the the art museum. That's right. And they had a lot of, they brought a lot of casts of Greek and Roman sculpture and they would, the sketch club would meet one night a week and uh, sketch from, from the antique, they said. They would observe the statues and, and sketch them. Elliot was always concerned about education and uh, he was responsible for Reed College and what Reed College became. Mm-hmm. And really, the the Reeds had wanted uh, an institution that was like a polytechnic, you know, training useful things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Elliot wanted a first class liberal arts college, and yes. of course, he got his way. <laughs> yes, yes, it's it's this. Uh... Uh, hallmark of classical education even to this day. I I believe I saw uh, an article just not too long ago, a few weeks ago, about how it was a study done that it reported on that basically said half of success is is who you know. And so I'm interested in this idea of, uh, or what you think of it, and and that, um, you know, if you're A.E. Doyle, you may have met all these people, and if you weren't talented, then they would have seen through you. And so it's not that he just knew people and wasn't a, a superb architect. Uh, um, but, you know, it is interesting that, um, you know, uh, there's a kind of strategy that has to go into being a successful architect, just like a successful anything, I guess. Well, I think there was certainly raw talent. I think he was also a very likable person. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was very warm and um, uh, very appreciative. Widden who dominated the Wynn and Lewis firm was a curmudgeon. For example, why Sigmund Frank gave the Myron Frank building to Doyle, who mm-hmm. was just starting out. Yeah. He was just 
back from Europe, and uh, he gave him what was probably one of the most important commissions that had been handed out in a long time. Yeah. But Whitten had done the previous building and had worked with that firm for a long time, but uh, he turned it over to Doyle. Doyle had been in the Whitten and Lewis firm, so he got to know that he was the designer for probably the last two years that he was there, so he probably got to know all those people there. And Sigmund Frank was the sort of person, I think, who recognized a Ability and wanted to appreciate it and uh, reward it, and mm-hmm. uh, and he liked Doyle, and uh, Doyle was very fond. Doyle could say some very anti-Semitic things sometimes, but he was very fond of uh, Sigmund Frank. Let's talk a little bit about Central Library, of course. Whether it's in terms of the uh, the architecture uh, itself or kind of the experience one has in certain spaces, uh, I wonder if you could kind of talk about what you think is important for people to know about the architecture of Central Library. I think the second floor reading rooms are magnificent. Mm-hmm. The enormous windows and the light that they bring, because that was the way you read at that time. Mm-hmm. People talked about a room having a 40-watt bulb. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that era, when electricity was very limited, the windows were very important, but it gave a magnificent uh, it's magnificence to the space. Absolutely. You go in there and there's a kind of golden light, isn't there? Yeah, there is. And the the, the way they've restored it by uh, with the furniture that they provided, mm-hmm. uh, I think, is, has warmed it and, and returned it to its uh, its original uh, glory. But I like the, 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 the way the building sits in the city with the benches around it mm-hmm. that kind of conceal the fact that they're trying to get this enormous temple on a flat space on a rather hilly spot. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But it, and, but it gives us, um, and it's so beautifully planted, and it's a, a charming part of the, uh, of the city. And I think the, uh, that kind of stark colonial temple um, architecture in the middle of, of the city is, is so refreshing because you don't, that's not normal kind of urban, you know, architectural style. Mm-hmm. This charming building right in the right in the center of the city. It's funny to me also. Sometimes I I tend to think about A. E. Doyle's Central Library uh, in comparison to Seattle's Central Library, which is a, a 21st century building by one of the two or three most renowned architects of our time, Rem Koolhaas, and and that building is viewed by many as a kind of 21st century masterpiece. And uh, I've been there, and I, I do think it's spectacular. Um, it's almost like an idea of a, of a building more than it's a place to hang out in that this it's built on this idea of like a continuous card catalog and everything. And, and yet uh, there are some magnificent uh, volumes and, and some beautiful natural light in there as well. And yet I wouldn't trade ours for theirs. You know, I, I do sometimes lament that, that Portland doesn't have uh, uh, many of the great architects of the world of, of the 21st century coming here and making a contribution. We're a little bit more insular than that. But A.E. Doyle and this this library make me glad that we're insular. And uh, uh, it, it I just, I, I feel like I have a love for Central Library that, that transcends the individual design qualities that we're talking about. And, and I think people have a kind of warm, fuzzy feeling for this building as much as almost any in the city. And I wondered if you felt that as well. Oh, I did. Did you grow up here? In McMinnville. Oh. Did you come to the library? 
No, no. I only got to know it as a as a twenty something when I moved back to Oregon from New York City in the late nineties. But it was something I gravitated to uh, uh, quickly because uh, it had just been renovated around that time, and I was uh, also writing for Willamette Week, which had offices across the street. So I'd oh, sit yeah. there, you know, uh, trying to right. come up with something on deadline and look out those windows at at, at Central Library. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I spent a lot of time in that library when I was uh, in high school. That's where I'd go right work on my term papers and oh wow and uh because my father worked in uh portland i could get borrowing privilege i grew up in clackamas county so mm-hmm. but i could get borrowing privileges on the basis of my father's employment oh so, right well what do you remember uh, about the immediate area around the library back in those days i th- remembered as being scruffy Uh, But I don't know that I was very sensitive, really, to those kinds of things at Mm -hmm. that that point in my life. But I remember during the uh, Hungarian uh, uprising, some Hungarians had come and started a a Hungarian restaurant just down the street. And that was really quite exciting in those days. We didn't have... (laughs) We didn't have that kind of food, you know. I thought you were going to say that they were uh, protesting or something, and instead you're talking oh, about— no. <laughs> no, no, they were moving. They were moving in. Instead you're talking about goulash. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Well, great. Well, thanks uh, very much for joining us, Phil, and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Well, thank you for having me. Support for this podcast and for X-Ray comes from Mutual Materials, providing masonry and hardscape products to architects, designers, and homeowners. Whether it's brick, block, pavers, retaining walls, or stone veneer, Mutual Materials helps you create long-lasting indoor and outdoor spaces. Visit Mutual Materials' new showroom in northwest Portland or one of its 18 locations across the Pacific Northwest. To find more information, ideas, and project photos, visit mutualmaterials.com. Mutual Materials, building beauty that lasts. Angela Wyrens is the Central City Library Manager for the Multnomah County Library System. She's been working for local libraries for 19 years overall, and most of that time at Central. Angela grew up in the rural Midwest, where the local library was, in her words, a sanctuary after school and on weekends. When she's not at Central, she can usually be found in the company of her elderly rescue dog, a pint-sized pit bull named Sugar. Angela, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Great to be here. The most important question I want to ask you to start off is, uh, how's Sugar doing these days? (laughs) She's actually getting some uh, anxiety separation training, and so we're working on not chewing on the front doorknob. (laughs) Mm, That's funny. And I just came from seeing uh, John Wick 3 at at the movies last night, and and the entire kind of four, three, four movie saga, I guess it's three movie saga now, hinges entirely on avenging his dog's death. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and, Good you know, motivation. Yeah, yeah, completely understandable. Why, you know, kill 275 people, uh, you know, that seems about <laughs> about right. <laughs> um, so uh, uh, turning our attention, uh, if we may, to Central Library, um, I wonder uh, if you could paint a picture for us a little bit about maybe what a typical weekday at Central might be like. Uh, and by that, I guess I mean that, you know, I think of there being this cross-section of people coming in and, and you see the, ver- the library being used for a variety of services. And uh, and so because of that, I think of, the, of a building like Central Library as being almost like a little Grand Central Station where there's people from all walks of life coming 
coming through. And so, you know, am I painting an accurate picture or a rose-colored glasses picture? Or what's what's a typical day, weekday like uh, in your estimation? I think that's actually pretty accurate, Brian. Uh, uh, our director often says, and I agree, that libraries are the most public spaces that exist right now. Um, and that's very important because in the climate we have, which, uh, you know, things are continually being commodified, uh, it's important for libraries to be able to provide a space that's free and available and open to everyone, mm-hmm, uh, no matter mm-hmm, who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have many types of patrons. Um, at, you, it, Grand Central Station is a great metaphor or a, a comparison. Um, in terms of frequency of use, um, we have people that come in all day, every day, and then we just have people that visit us every once in a while, and then people that come in as a as a destination from, um, you know, all over the globe saying, oh, th- this is the one time that I'm going to be here. Um, and so uh, we do have a lot of different uh, different frequencies of use. Mm-hmm. Um, people use a lot of different resources. They use uh, materials very differently. We've got books, DVDs, CDs. Um, we also have streaming um, and downloadable uh, materials. We've got computers. We've got laptops. We've just got space where people can sit and just be and think. We've got some collaborative spaces where people mm-hmm. can work together on things. Um, and yeah, we just want to provide the materials that people need, the space that they need, and the interactions so that people can have the interactions that they want to have. Yeah, yeah. And that gets in a little bit already, uh, shame on you, uh, into my next question, which is uh, <laughs> I, I'd like to ask about how the role of libraries in our society is, has evolved, because of course we absorb information differently than we used to. Uh, most, much of it comes uh, like from the internet or, or appears on screens of some kind. And so uh, how do you see the kind of, I don't know if this is the right word, but like the ecosystem of printed and electronic material today? And, and how much is, is central or any library today as much, a, um, if I were to be cynical, a kind of internet cafe as much as it is a place of books? Uh, well, until about 25 years ago, we inhabited a reality where information lived at the library and you had to go there to access it. Um, but now um, our reality is, I don't know, more like information surrounds us and there's a lot of different ways to access information so the library is just one avenue we're not the only game in town anymore for information so that's given us the opportunity to do more and to be more Um, we have for instance uh, now we have classes where kids can learn how to code video games Um, you can um, come in and make an appointment to learn how to start a small business you can get one-on-one help with consumer technology Um, my mom would be a big fan of -hmm. of that if she lived here (laughs) Um, And all sorts of other DIY skills. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So Central Library, um, if I can just speak to to that building, is a a lot more than just a building full of books. Although we we are a building full of books and we will always have books. That's going to be part of our um, reality um, going into the future. But, um, you know, a big part of our circulation now includes both streaming and downloadable materials. Mm -hmm. One half of all of our interactions with our patrons right now occur in a virtual environment. Oh, wow. So online, on the phone, people emailing us, those sorts of things, Um, people using our website to kind of manage their own information needs. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Half of our business is done in a virtual environment. Interesting. Interesting. In some of our neighborhoods within Multnomah County, I think the uh, number of folks that don't have access to high-speed internet can be as high as 40%. Mm. So we helped to fill that gap. Um, We provided 2.5 million free internet stations last year. Uh, sessions, excuse me, and that uh, that includes both, um, you know, time logged into a physical uh, PC mm-hmm. um, with uh, with a CPU, and also um, laptops and things that we check out. But also, we provide wireless for our neighborhoods, mm-hmm. um, and people can just come in and use it. They don't have to buy anything. Um, they don't have to. 
uh, they don't have to have a card with us. They can just come in and use it. And it really strikes me that in a time of such rising or, or substantial inequality, that that this is really a way to give people a leg up who don't necessarily have those same resources. Absolutely. I think um, we can all agree that the internet is no longer just sort of a luxury item or a mm -hmm. thing that's nice to have, but it's really integral to just daily life. You need it for almost anything. Um, and those big those big things, especially um, I think of like getting job searches mm -hmm. um, or job applications are generally done online now. It's, it's amazing how even just entry-level jobs are like you have to complete an application online mm -hmm. and you have to know how to use a computer. Um, then, But just also just day-to-day -day stuff. I mean, people manage their you know bank accounts. They order their groceries. Um, they they use that as a as a way to connect um, mm -hmm. rather than calling somebody on the phone. They'll maybe FaceTime them, mm -hmm. etc. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think the internet is a is a critical piece of society. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you know, Central in particular, it was built over a century ago, and, and you know, it, it's actually been a couple of decades, if I'm not mistaken, even since the building was renovated. And so you know, what's your impression of how the building is is doing today? Is it is it going to need another restoration anytime soon? And uh, I'm curious, like if if A.E. Doyle's design is something that you find is has been flexible or is flexible enough to, to sort of evolve with changing times. Well, I think there's a couple answers to that question. I mean, the it is an aging building, um, so it is it is an older building, but it is in physically good condition. Um, that's for two reasons. One, we've got a pretty strict regimen of um, preventative maintenance, but, they, you know, they... they don't build them like they used to, mm -hmm. um, and it's a very, very solid building. Uh, takes up a whole block, and it is very, uh, it is very stable and sturdy. Um, when it was renovated, that's you. You mentioned that it was about two decades ago in the late, late nineties. Uh, um, that was right on the cusp of some pretty enormous changes um, with regard to how people access information, as we've mm -hmm. already talked about the internet versus books. So if if we were to go back, <laughs> if we were to be able to go back in time, I think we might um, give things like electricity access, like outlets. That's a mm -hmm. something that a lot of people want, um, and computers, um, and just the um, ability to integrate new uh, technology into the space. Mm -hmm. um, those things might be given higher priorities. Mm -hmm. So um, the structure. Structural integrity is fantastic, but um, there have been many other changes to how people use the library since, um, you know, the Internet and Google um, kind of came into our lives and sort of took over. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, as, as I mentioned before, we're, we're, we're kind of a building full of books. Uh, warehouses for books was sort of the way that libraries used to be built. You'd have mm -hmm. a building and it was filled with paper and materials. Mm -hmm. um, the design um, and age of our building presents some practical limitations um, concerning, like when it comes to how people, what they want right now out of their libraries. Mm -hmm. um, there are other libraries in Austin, uh, Calgary, that reflect sort of a different kind of thinking about what a library can be. Yeah. And those include things like open, flexible spaces. So a gigantic space that can be separated and sectioned off and um, filled with different furniture on wheels mm -hmm. um, and with um, you know sound system that uh, includes the entire space. Um, things that are better suited to the trend of continual change. So like we know that we can take this wall down eventually if we need it. We want it right now, but mm -hmm. we know we can take it down later. Mm -hmm. um, we also want to reduce barriers to access, including physical barriers, and that can be kind of challenging with an older building. Mm -hmm. um, back, um, you know, they didn't have universal design or they weren't thinking about trauma-informed space planning mm -hmm. back when they built this building. So some of the physical constraints limit what we can do um, and can also contribute to potential um, conflicts, right? But what we would like to see um, eventually is, and what we're moving towards is to kind of create human-centered, responsive proactive, high-impact spaces that are very flexible mm -hmm. and can be used for many different things. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's funny you say that. You mentioned uh, some libraries being constructed in recent years in places like Calgary. I think that was um, 
uh, a recent library that was completed and one in San Antonio as well. Um, and some really excellent uh, architects have been involved with that, uh, Snohetta in, in Calgary and Lake Flato in, in San Antonio. And, and yet uh, I, I was thinking about this uh, a number of years ago when Seattle built its sort of flagship central library by one of the top architects in the world, Rem Koolhaas, and it was this kind of, you know, looked like a kind of diamond occupying a city block. And it's really kind of an incredible to be in that space. And yet at the same time, I did think to myself, would I trade any of these for central library? I'm not so sure. And so um, I have a kind of romantic idea of central library. And so I wonder if you have any particular spaces that you love and, and not kind of for functional reasons, but because they kind of elicit some kind of soulfulness, like because of it's, <laughs> you know, a big chandelier in a reading room or the, the stairways with carvings in them. And are there any spaces that I know it's different? A, a, a building gets demystified maybe a little bit <laughs> when you have to sort yeah. of be in it every day. But are there places for you that retain some kind of sense of of some wonder in any way. Yeah, I, I, there, I, I could probably talk about that for about an hour. Um, I think that there are a few places in the building that second floor, everybody loves the second floor with the Palladian windows and the, just the light in there in the spring and fall is absolutely amazing. And it really makes you feel like you're in a you're in a very kind of sacred space. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're on the third floor, um, which I know has a little bit lower ceilings, it's not as grand, but if you take a look out the side, um, the side streets, Yamhill and Taylor, um, and look down at the street, the trees are all have grown up past the windows and mm-hmm. it sort of makes you feel like you're in a treehouse. Mm-hmm. So there's all of these, the 800s are up there and that's the literature section so you can get like, uh, you know, Shakespeare play and then just kind of go lean out the window and look and pretend that you're in a treehouse, mm-hmm. you know, reading mm-hmm. a play. Mm-hmm. So Wherefore cool. out there, Romeo. Yeah, exactly, you know? <laughs> exactly. Or thou. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, that's great, that's great. Um, so I think I'd like to ask you one last question. Um, I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that that library that you grew up in as a kid. What were you, re- you know, sitting there on the floor reading Nancy Drew mysteries, or is that a ridiculous stereotype? Or, or <laughs> yeah, you tell me about that library. Yeah, that um, that uh, was in a Carnegie building actually, and it um, it was in a very small rural town in in Minnesota, and um, it was it was sort of a, one of the buildings that was divided into smaller little places, so it had a lot of nooks and crannies. Um, and I was, when I first was turned loose in there, I remember thinking, like, I can go anywhere and look at any of these books. And that was just uh-huh. a really amazing, very empowering feeling. Um, I The first thing that I remember dis- discovering, I'll put that in quotes, discovered um, when I was turned loose was um, Tobe Jansen's books, The Moomin, Moomin Troll um, mm-hmm. and The Moomins. Um, and that, that those books just blew my mind, <laughs> blew my mind still to this day. Um, uh-huh. They really hold up. And I have memories of going to a Carnegie library in, in my hometown, McMinnville, uh, about an hour from here in Portland and, and doing something similar, being being turned loose and, and um, you know, just pulling books off the shelf kind of for the first time in my life in a, in a public space. Uh, I think Tom Swift, like this old uh, um, kids adventure series, was, was something I remember my dad uh, showing me and, and then maybe the Hardy Boys as well. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, uh, and we have libraries like Central in, in big cities like Portland. And, and it really is kind of an astonishing thing, though, when you see what Carnegie libraries did all over mm-hmm. the United States. And, and of course, that was a time of, of terrible inequality where a few rich people were taking more than their fair share. But at least you had uh, some benevolence, people like Andrew Carnegie and, and maybe J.P. Morgan and some of the other robber barons really making contributions to society. 
yeah, I mean, we have that's as I said, like we were, uh, you know, my where I grew up was a was a fairly small town, and having a Carnegie Library there was it was a it was a it was a gift to the town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Angela, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the show. What a great time talking with you. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. And now we come to the end of the story, or at least the end of this chapter. Thanks again to Phil Niles and Angela Wyrens for talking with us about Central Library, its design by A.E. Doyle, and what it meant to this great architect's career, as well as how the building serves hundreds, if not thousands, of people every day today in a variety of ways. Recently, as we were putting this podcast episode together, I decided to bike down to Central Library and take a look around. At first, my attention went to the architectural details outside, like all the author names inscribed on the building facade as well as the benches outside. Everyone from Johannes Gutenberg, who introduced the printing press in 1439, to novelists like Cervantes, Dickens, Thackeray, Austin. Scientists like Galileo, Newton, Darwin, and Copernicus are inscribed on the building as well, and inventors like Pasteur, Morse, and Watt, even religious figures from Erasmus to Confucius, generals to Hannibal and Alexander and Tecumseh, Grant, even Robert E. Lee, actually. The architectural wonders really bloomed, of course, as I went inside, though. Everyone knows the grand staircase at Central Library, but what I'd forgotten was the view upward through the skylight two floors above, around which the stairway gently curves. I love the gigantic circular chandelier that hangs over the second-floor lobby, too, and the huge Venetian windows with the curve at the top, flooding the reading rooms with light. But as I was standing there a few days ago, taking pictures in the big second-floor periodicals room, I got interrupted, but in the best way possible, by a cross-section of my fellow library-goers and even an employee. It was just a Monday early afternoon, and the place was packed. Just to enter the building, I had to hold the door open for five people. When I came into the periodicals room, just as I aimed my phone camera, I was approached by a library staff member. I thought maybe I wasn't allowed to take pictures or something, but it was my old friend Perry, who I first got to know working together at the Urban League of Portland some 20 years ago. As Perry and I caught up a little bit and shared a couple of laughs, he kept on helping people at the periodicals counter, like a vision-impaired woman looking for back issues of Cook's Illustrated magazine. Perry fetched a box of them for her and set her up at a table without missing a beat in the discussion we were having about how North Williams Avenue, the location of our old workplace, had gentrified and transformed. Then an elderly gentleman in Tweed came in and complimented me on my New York University t-shirt and started telling me about his alma mater and mine in the 50s. And there was Perry still working away. The job is a dream, Perry told me, talking to people about books and journalism all day, But it's sometimes a challenge because it serves so many people who are struggling, people who need the help of the library and a lot more. And sure enough, as I made my way out of the library that afternoon, a staff member was explaining to another customer, seemingly homeless, where she could access other county social services. Public buildings have their own kind of energy. Airports, courthouses, stadiums, libraries, schools. They're often chaotic, full of people from different communities, cultures, and classes, all coming together in these large volumes of space, but particularly as we have become more and more divided, and as more of the goods and services we buy get delivered to our doors, keeping us at home, these buildings become all the more important, places we gather. Like a lot of the buildings and places we're featuring on this podcast, I love that this building has a duality of old and new stories, 
There's a real history to it, and in fact, we could have delved into so many other stories, like that of Mary Frances Isom, for example. She was the first female head of the Portland Library Association, and she guided the library from a subscription-based service occupying one floor of a bank building downtown to building its own home and opening its doors to everyone, free of charge. Amen to that. Isom also worked closely with architect A.E. Doyle to assure that the design wasn't just a beautiful building, but a functional one. It was even her idea to place the book stacks in the center of the building, accessible to not just librarians, but the general public, for practically the first time. But there are also new stories being written from the old ones at Central Library every day. This is a building as relevant to us in 2019 as it was more than a century ago when it was built. And while the chandeliers and the marble and the wide-open rooms are nice, maybe best of all, if you can't find what you're looking for, people like my friend Perry are there to help. In fact, you're almost better off needing that help and maybe starting up a conversation. That's what it's all about, human connections, through the printed word or face-to-face, and that gorgeous yet functional architecture that enables it all. And now a quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials, who helps make all of this possible. They also have helped to make Portland possible in a way since a lot of the city was built with their products. That cool brick building? It could be mutual materials. And that exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store? It might be slim brick tile from mutual materials. And those outdoor spaces with paved patios and retaining walls and fire pits? Those might be made with mutual materials too. So if you're looking for masonry or hardscape products, I recommend you check out mutual materials. Search of Portland is brought to you by Mutual Materials and X-Ray FM. Thanks very much to our producers, Amalia Boyles, Ed Curtis, and Chase Spross. A big thank you as well to my musician friends in the Washington, D.C. band Beauty Pill, and particularly songwriter Chad Clark for graciously allowing us to use one of their songs for our podcast theme. Beauty Pill's 2014 release, entitled Beauty Pill Describes Things As They Are, was named to year's best albums list by National Public Radio and Rolling Stone magazine. Keep an eye out for their upcoming record entitled Please Advise. Thanks as well to a couple other friends of mine, Maxwell Griffin for providing graphic design, including our podcast logo, and to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artworks to go with each building we feature on In Search of Portland. That artwork can be found on our website. In fact, you can find every episode of this podcast at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you made it this far, thanks very much once again for listening. And please join us next time on In Search of Portland. Bye-bye for now.